Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Regina, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, Chemotherapy, a novel, tre novel treatment approach to prevent and manage gastrointestinal treatment side effects. And today's program is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sanko, and I really would like to thank them for their support of this program today. Now, we have many participants on the call today. We have over 250 participants on the call. You might, the majority of you come from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Algeria, Bahrain, Canada, India, the territory of Puerto Rico, Romania, Sweden, territory of Virgin Island, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call, and we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grala. Dr. Grala is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grala will be addressing, he'll be providing an introduction to gastrointestinal chemotherapy side effects. And he'll introduce the program itself, how nausea and vomiting are prevented and managed, and why chemotherapy can cause nausea and vomiting, or emesis. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grala. Well, thank you. Hello, and uh, thanks again, Carolyn. I'm uh, Dr. Richard Grala. I'm a medical oncologist here at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Jacoby Medical Center in New York. Uh, it is, again, my pleasure to introduce the program dealing with gastrointestinal or GI side effects of anti-cancer therapy. We have several topics to focus on and a wonderful panel assembled today to address them. My colleagues on the program are highly regarded worldwide, not only for their knowledge and experience, but also for their skills in delivering excellent care. I hope the discussions will be helpful to you and your family. Again, as Carolyn mentioned, we'll have a question and answer opportunity following all the presentations. Remarkable changes in cancer care, including new modalities of treatment and new ways to prevent side effects, have occurred over the past several years. It's fair to say that we're in an evolutionary period of how to maximize the benefits of these newer methods. I'd like to start to be sure by starting to be sure that everybody understands two relatively new terms. The first is called precision medicine. While many definitions are possible, one that I think works well comes from the National Institutes of Health and states, precision medicine is an emerging approach for disease prevention and treatment that takes into account people's individual variations in genes, environment, and lifestyle. So let's emphasize the word individual. This means that your healthcare team wishes to focus on you and your characteristics to bring the best anti-cancer and supportive care uh, to you. The second term is patient reported outcomes, or PROs. This reflects that in many areas, only through fine communication 
with patient and family input, can we truly understand the issues that need to be addressed? And this applies very much to GI toxicities. As an example, I'm having nausea. How's your appetite? Only you could answer these questions. There's no blood test or x-ray. With this communication, your care can be further individualized and maximized. While my colleagues will be addressing many additional issues, I'll start by talking about the prevention of nausea and vomiting. Patients and families have told us that control of nausea and vomiting with chemotherapy is at or near the top of their concerns. This is why it's worth our discussing this important area, an area in which great progress has been made in recent years and an area in which continued improvements are occurring. To me, it's a bit puzzling that this remarkable progress in preventing nausea and vomiting, or emesis, is not well known by the general public. I wish that the news media, television, magazines, and movies, too, would get it right. It's safe to say that the majority of people getting anti-cancer treatment today will not experience vomiting from it, although some will. So why do nausea and vomiting occur with chemotherapy? Well, you know, nausea and vomiting is a normal protective reflex or response. Foreign substances that we ingest by mouth that aren't uh, normal for us, the body tries to get rid of it. But, you know, a lot of our treatment is intravenous, and so the body didn't evolve to understand that there's a difference this way. So, therefore, the body kind of interprets these uh, or perceives chemotherapy uh, as being something bad that we ingested and tries to get rid of it. And um, so the reaction is through the, the GI tract, but even oral medications can seem this way and also induce nausea and vomiting. We all have sensors or receptors in the gut and also in the brain. So in the gut, it... it uh, uh, looks at contents that we have taken in, meals and other things. And in the brain, it monitors chemicals in the blood, not just in the stomach. So it's tricky, but an important protective reflex. The whole idea is we want, to, we want it to be there to protect us, but we want to turn it off when it's not needed. So that's how our most active agents work. They turn off this reflex temporarily when we don't need it. So for the healthcare team, knowing these mechanisms is key. It gives us a lead on how to prevent nausea and vomiting or emesis, and we'll describe it a bit more uh, in a second. Let me start by describing a patient of mine who's very representative and illustrative of the issue. As it turns out, I actually saw her yesterday. We need to think about the prevention of, of emesis in every patient who's receiving chemotherapy. I'll call this patient Mrs. Wilson. She's a 57-year-old woman who presented with advanced lung cancer with many symptoms. It was clear that systemic chemotherapy, emphasizing chemotherapy, systemic therapy, emphasizing chemotherapy, would be being used and would be indicated, and that we'd be using several anti-cancer agents together, some of which have a very high likelihood of causing nausea and vomiting if effective anti-nausea medicines are not given. The goal is to prevent the emesis, not to wait for it to happen. What factors would contribute to individualizing the anti-nausea strategy for Mrs. Wilson? First, the choice of the chemotherapy that she's to receive. Oncologists and oncology nurses know that there are different risks of nausea and vomiting associated with different chemotherapy agents. 
This could lead to the use of no antiemetic agents if the risk is truly minimal, or one agent, or two or three, or even four as prevention, depending on the chemotherapy being given. Second, for some reason, it's a little bit more difficult to prevent emesis in women than in men. Third, it can be more difficult to prevent emesis, nausea and vomiting, in younger people than in older people. Mrs. Wilson, this patient, is middle-aged at 57, so her risk is about average. There are some other factors, too, but these are the main ones. So knowing these factors, we might recommend an extra agent or so uh, or an extra day of treatment for some people rather than others. We learned several years ago that certain serotonin receptors are important in the process in both the GI tract and in the brain. Today, we can block these receptors with special Cetron drugs, which when used properly are very helpful and have few side effects for most people. These drugs include names that you might know on Dancitron, Granicitron, Palinocitron, all of which have trade names like Zofran and Aloxy. We then learned that another pathway uh, is associated with a small natural protein transmitter called substance P is also important, especially in the brain. We have other medicines to address this pathway called the NK1 pathway. And like the Cetrons, these usually have very few side effects. These are medicines such as AMEND or the combination medicine, Akinzio. Either orally or IV, uh, these drugs can be very effective. And an older class of medicines, those related to cortisone or corticosteroids, can also be important for many people. Most often used is dexamethasone or decadron. Recently, it has been found that just one day of this can be as good as several days for many patients, and this can reduce drug-related side effects. Finally, an older oral medicine called olanzapine or Zyprexa can also be useful as an added agent in some circumstance. So you can see how your doctors and nurses will see whether just one of these classes or multiple is what's needed to give the maximum benefit for you. Now, olanzapine or Zyprexa is also a tranquilizer, but that's not the reason for its use. It's used for its inherent anti-nausea properties. Anti-nausea and anti-vomiting medicines are called antiemetics, and they're equally beneficial as uh, preventatives when given either orally or intravenously. They're typically given shortly before the chemotherapy, but some of the agents may be given for a few days afterwards, even if a person is doing very well. I'm pleased to report that Mrs. Wilson got three of these medicines right before each of her four chemotherapy cycles and was never troubled with nausea or vomiting. She also received an immune oncology agent called a checkpoint inhibitor, which she continued for many cycles after the chemotherapy. Fortunately, the checkpoint inhibitors almost never cause emesis, and when she received this agent, she did not need an antiemetic and had no nausea or vomiting. Finally, I'd like to give a few pointers in anti-nausea care. Remember, anti-nausea medicines are given to prevent the problem rather than waiting for it to occur. So be sure you understand your doctor's and nurse's instructions for taking the anti-nausea medicines just right. But remember, many times people will be given the medicines uh, in the infusion or chemo area. Make sure you have the proper medicines and a sufficient supply. If you're diabetic, you might need to be particularly attentive to your blood sugar levels and know what to do with them. Be sure you're keeping up with fluids, and uh, this is an area that I'm sure Ms. Clark Snow will elaborate on. 
I'll now turn the program back to Carolyn Messner and look forward to the presentations of my colleagues, which are coming right up. Carolyn? Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Brawler. That was a wonderful presentation. And really, Estella, you really set the stage for today's program. Um, and um, I know there will be questions to you during the Q&A. And indeed, our next speaker is uh, Ms. Rebecca Clark Snow. And uh, Ms. Clark Snow is an oncology um, supportive care consultant, an oncology nurse. And she will be discussing um, dealing with low appetite, or what they call anorexia, having a proper diet, working with your oncology team, the role of the oncology nurse in preventing chemotherapy, gastrointestinal, GI treatment side effects, and the important, importance of being prepared before treatment starts. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rebecca Clark Snow. Well, thank you, Dr. Messner, for this invitation to discuss a topic of concern to patients, caregivers, and healthcare providers during this afternoon's cancer care workshop. Good afternoon, everyone, and happy Friday. Um, food is, of course, essential every day. It provides the fuel for energy and much-needed nutrients to keep us happy and healthy. It's also very much a part of our, of our connecting with friends, family, and those we work with. For many, sharing a meal is an enjoyable social event, but in the midst of a cancer diagnosis where eating becomes an issue and difficult, it needs to be brought to the attention of healthcare providers who will investigate causes and identify solutions. This affects not only patients, but also our loved ones who will always do their best to meet the emotional and physical needs of those we care for. Anorexia, or decreased appetite in patients with cancer, is multifactorial. This afternoon, I will outline some of the causes of this disturbing symptom, how it is assessed and identified, interventions, how patients are monitored, and how a multidisciplinary approach can provide patients with the best possible opportunity for improved outcomes. It is not all uncommon during initial cancer diagnosis for patients to present with weight loss and some degree of a lack of appetite. This is most notably observed in patients with gastrointestinal cancers who present with weight loss and issues related to adequate nutritional intakes. intake. It's been reported that approximately 80% of patients with GI cancers experience weight loss even when they have a good performance status. A cancer diagnosis may cause a complicated medical response that impacts appetite, resulting in distress and a reduced desire to eat. Mechanisms and causes of anorexia and cancer can include the following. Severe pain, gastroparesis or delayed emptying of stomach contents, early satiety or feeling full, nausea and vomiting, and chronic nausea, depression, dysgeusia or an altered taste perception, constipation, gastrointestinal obstruction, some comorbid, con comorbid conditions including thyroid dysfunction, vitamin deficiency, dysphagia or difficulty swallowing, mucositis and mouth sores, which will be reviewed in detail by Dr. Epstein, 
and medications, including chemotherapy. Appetite and weight loss are associated with important clinical outcomes, such as fewer completed cycles of chemotherapy sometimes, more treatment-related side effects, and a poorer health-related quality of life. It's therefore extremely important that patients at risk be identified early in order to provide the greatest opportunity for effective intervention. Any delays could potentially result in not providing appropriate counseling and treatment. An important point that we as healthcare providers must be aware of is that anorexia may not always be identified by healthcare providers. And some patients may be hesitant at times to report symptoms related to their diagnosis. So goals for patient assessment of anorexia include identifying patients at risk, screening patients for eating-related concerns, identification of early signs, making referrals as needed, including nutritional consults, identifying a treatment plan, and monitoring outcomes of interventions. There's no standard to diagnose anorexia, so thorough questioning to determine its presence and the degree of loss of appetite compared to normal is accomplished initially by nurses and physicians. Assessments should ideally be obtained early at diagnosis prior to starting treatment using institutional questionnaires, checklists, or established assessment tools. The management and clinical assessment of patients either identified at risk or who have been diagnosed with anorexia should focus on nutrient intake, symptoms contributing to poor oral intake, weight and body composition if necessary, and identification of reversible metabolic abnormalities. A multidisciplinary team approach which incorporates recommendations endorsed by professional oncology, nursing, medical, and nutrition organizations in the U.S., including the Oncology Nursing Society, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, the American Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition, and the Association of Community Cancer Centers provide institutions and healthcare providers with comprehensive interventions to assist patients while navigating throughout the cancer continuum. Once again, these supportive interventions highlight the importance of the following principles to optimize clinical practice. Physician oncology nutrition at the center of multidisciplinary care. Partner with colleagues and administrators to integrate a nutrition care process into a multidisciplinary cancer care approach. Screen all patients for malnutrition risk at diagnosis. Combine exercise and nutrition interventions before, during, and after treatment as an oncology standard of care, and incorporate a patient-centered approach into multidisciplinary care. So the team approach includes the following. Nutrition screening initiated by oncology nurses, ideally to be completed at diagnosis and recorded in the electronic medical record. A nutrition assessment initiated by physicians and dietitians using validated tools, when available with relevant information and results communicated 
to the entire multidisciplinary care team. The role of the dietitian is one of collaborative problem solving, building rapport with patients and caregivers via psychosocial support to include empathy, uh, reliable provision of care, and the delivery of a positive perspective. Patient monitoring should be accomplished by physicians, nurses, and dietitians. Reevaluations to be scheduled at regular intervals. Any changes affecting the patient's medical status will be communicated to the multidisciplinary care team. Patient teaching by nurses and dietitians is paramount and must be reinforced during clinic visits and follow-up phone calls. Practical nutritional advice for patients will include the following. Eat whenever you feel like eating. Take advantage of the times you're hungriest. Consider eating the largest meal of the day at that time. Make meals enjoyable by eating in a pleasant atmosphere with family and friends. Eat small secret meals or snacks. Have nutritious snacks handy to easily grab during the day. Consider light exercise before a meal, which may in fact help stimulate appetite. Treat plenty of fluids between meals, but not necessarily during meals. And maintain regular bowel function. In conclusion, patients who experience a loss of appetite at initial diagnosis, during treatment, at the conclusion of treatment, or beyond, must be assured that every attempt to restore or improve their appetite will be explored. Treatment of anorexia should be individualized, taking into consideration the patient's overall condition, principal mechanisms of their weight loss, and the patient's goals for care. The approach should be multidisciplinary with frequent follow-up and reevaluation of current treatment as needed, as healthcare providers, we must also be sensitive to cultural differences among patients that could possibly influence advice and treatment plans. Patients and caregivers should feel confident in the care and information they are receiving and always feel comfortable contacting any of the team members with questions or concerns. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Rebecca Clark Snow, for that excellent presentation. Um, uh, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Just a wonderful presentation. Thank you. It's my pleasure now to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Joel Epstein. Dr. Epstein is Diplomat, American Board of Oral Medicine, Consulting Staff, Division of Otolaryngology, and Head and Neck Surgery, City of Hope. And Dr. Epstein will be addressing understanding stomatitis, mouth sores, and other oral side effects of chemotherapy, and developing a plan to prevent and manage stomatitis and mouth sores. It is now my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Epstein. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Messner, and I'd like to thank the organizers and planners uh, to be here with you. The topic uh, is, is a field in which I have been active uh, with patient management and research for, for a long time. Uh, the needs continue. Uh, and in fact, are becoming uh, more complicated uh, over time with new therapies. Um, so, what I wanted to do was just begin with a uh, sort of a little anecdote, which is that years ago, when there were barber dentists, dentistry became attached to the barber pathway uh, and separated from medicine. And that's really continued 
currently with based on training, based on insurance and, and coverage of, of cost of care, and really internationally. So in essence, the mouth was successfully extracted from the rest of the body, a bit of a dental joke, um, but we're really putting it back. Um, and part of uh, of uh, this whole uh, program today uh, really begins with the oral cavity. That's the entryway to the GI tract, and I'm happy to uh, be here to discuss uh, that part of this. Um, so you can say this, why does it even matter when it's a, an oral condition? Well, you've heard already uh, about uh, diet and nutrition intake. Uh, pain was not mentioned, and that's the real driver for patients. We also have concerns of the tissues that prevent organism access to the body, meaning an uh, intact mucosal barrier, uh, being disrupted as part of the therapy, and particularly in uh, immuno and, and uh, myelosuppressed blood cancer patients where blood counts are affected, infections sy systemically can arise from a number of oral sources, including from tissue damage due to mucositis. Um, so, so this has an impact upon uh, the therapy itself, oral mucositis and pain in, in some of the uh, specific cancers and therapies that place people at risk is the main driver for the need for opioid or narcotic pain relievers, uh, which are also only partially effective for, for the pain itself. Uh, so it has a significant impact upon uh, quality of life. Uh, has a significant impact upon oral intake uh, based on uh, mucosal integrity. Um, and in addition, when the oral tissues are damaged by the therapy needed to manage the cancer, taste receptors are also affected, uh, which has a, uh, an impact upon uh, oral intake as the previous speaker presented. So there's significant impact. It also drives um, increased uh, emergency room use and increased uh, uh, provider time. Uh, so oral mucositis is a significant uh, uh, condition in the cancer uh, environment. Um, the things that are changing now is new therapies, and new therapies often cause new toxicities or changes in the presentation. So uh, we think of more traditionally um, mouth-related mucositis as due to toxic therapies, that would be radiation or the more standard chemotherapies, that broadly affect primarily the surface cells or the epithelial cells, but also affect uh, the connective tissue uh, that is part of the surface and potentially affect the oral environment in general, and that includes saliva and microbiological changes. Uh, but the newer therapies uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Grala alluded to also uh, targeted or more molecularly driven chemotherapies cause a different form of mucosal damage and pain uh, with different mechanisms in the etiology, and therefore uh, we are seeking new and better therapies to manage these. Furthermore, he mentioned immune checkpoint inhibitors, which uh, are stimulating uh, a cellular response that can affect oral tissues um, affecting salivation, affecting uh, mouth lesions that are more immune-mediated and different in presentation and management, um, that, so that uh, we are now looking at more complex uh, mucositis and oral changes associated with the more complex and, and more effective therapy protocols that are in place. So 
moving to what can we do about this? One is uh, prevention or prehabilitation. Uh, and in the case of the oral cavity, this in, in, should include in many cases uh, standard of care requires that an oral dental evaluation to, for example, uh, remove rough and irritating surfaces or, or devices, uh, improve oral hygiene and maintain reduced bacterial and microbial load, um, and attention to saliva should be given um, and, and uh, managed if there are conditions that uh, require pre-treatment uh, management. During therapy, and when therapy is initiated, we can look to preventive approaches to prevent the uh, epithelial surface cell damage and perhaps reduce the um, inflammation in the adjacent tissue and therefore the pain. Um, in, in looking at most of the research to date, uh, this has essentially been the uh, methods that have been chosen. So we begin therapy and, and surface treatments before or at the time of initiation of, of the treatment itself uh, for the cancer. Um, there are uh, several approaches that have received uh, high-level recommendations based on randomized and multiple trials uh, supporting its use for prevention. One is an anti-inflammatory uh, agent that is not available in the U.S. but can be obtained by mail order, and that's benzidamine, which is a non-ulcer-inducing, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. So it's like a non-ulcerogenic aspirin-like medication. It's delivered as a mouth rinse. It has pain effect, and it has mucosal uh, protective effects. Uh, that has uh, received a, a high level of recommendation by uh, study groups assessing mucositis. The other tool that we now have is red or infrared light therapy, better known as photobiomodulation, which is a light-delivered uh, treatment applied to mucosal surfaces prior to tissue damage with potential both anti-inflammatory and pain effects. Uh, and, and can be done in, as per most studies, two to three times weekly uh, in a professional setting, but we're now moving to looking at home LED devices that may allow uh, daily treatment. Um, the other approaches include pain relievers when pain is present. These can be in the form of mouth rinses um, that, that can be prescribed. Uh, other approaches include coating and soothing agents um, that may uh, improve or reduce friction or trauma to tissue surfaces. Um, going back to the targeted and immune therapy drug toxicities involving neural cavity, the main treatment approach has been anti-inflammatory supplied to the surface of the tissue and occasionally, if severe enough, or multiple other sites involved uh, systemically. So these are steroids in the form of either a rinse or a topical application, and that addresses the differences in these uh, uh, mechanisms of tissue damage. Also, photobiomodulation or red and infrared light has been shown to be uh, value in, in uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor and uh, other uh, immune-related mouth damage, con damaging conditions, and so this may be a, an approach that can be given. Furthermore, oral hygiene can be compromised uh, during treatment uh, because of pain, and then we may utilize uh, softer toothbrushes, uh, non-irritating uh, oral uh, gels, 
and anti-infective antiseptic Motrinses. Um, but going back to what our next step in research is, is better prevention, um, but also better healing. So uh, if we can uh, identify uh, a high enough risk population to begin the treatments before the tissue damage, that's that's what is recommended with the benzidamine and the photobiomodulation. But also, we know that uh, um, many people will have mucosal damage that is not as predictable uh, based on the therapy and the location of the cancer and the treatment provided for the cancer. And in those settings, we may optimally uh, begin treatments when symptoms first develop uh, and tissue damage is identified. Um, as far as accelerating repair, uh, there may be a role for photobiomodulation in repair acceleration, so this may become a more widely recognized and uh, more actively used uh, intervention. Um, I'm not going to mention more about uh, taste management at this point because of time, um, but there is active research in uh, taste pre uh, loss prevention and taste function recovery. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's uh, the beginning of the GI tract is zero cavity. It allows and facilitates oral intake, all of which is related to the potential clustering of symptoms that include leading to weight loss, even dehydration, increased use of medical resources, um, and quality of life. So uh, I would like to end with that uh, to keep us uh, at good time, and I'd like to thank uh, uh, the, all, all of the uh, participants and those who are listening. Uh, I'm happy to have been part of this uh, excellent program, and I'd like to turn this back to uh, Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Epstein. That was an, a fantastic presentation, just wonderful. And um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And um, our, our next speaker is Dr. Lee Schwarzberg. Um, and Dr. Schwarzberg is Chief Medical Oncology and Hematology, renowned Institute for Cancer, Professor of Clinical Medicine, University of Nevada, Reno. And Dr. Schwarzberg will be addressing current research directions to improve control of diarrhea and GI treatment side effects, new agents, the importance of clinical trials, and how relevant are telehealth, telemedicine appointments today. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Schwartzberg. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Uh, thank you for inviting me to this talk, and uh, I appreciate uh, all the participation of my colleagues who have done an excellent job. And what I'm going to do is move a little further down the GI tract and move to the large intestine and focus on diarrhea, which is caused by abnormalities typically in the colorectal area. Now, diarrhea, as we all know, is uncomfortable at best, but it can cause a number of uh, side effects that can be very dangerous to patients who are um, facing cancer and getting treatment. Diarrhea can lead to severe dehydration, particularly if the diarrhea is watery, and electrolytes can be lost in large numbers and quantities through uh, the GI tract. That can lead to kidney or even heart dysfunction, depending on the electrolyte abnormality. And some people with diarrhea have to be hospitalized uh, to receive hydration and electrolyte replacement 
as well as a symptomatic relief of the diarrhea. Chronic diarrhea can lead to malnutrition, as we heard from uh, Dr. Clark Snow, and uh, it can be a vicious cycle. In fact, diarrhea itself affects the treatments that you're getting for your cancer. More patients who have diarrhea are likely to discontinue chemotherapy. That happens with both standard chemotherapy and targeted agents. In some cases, their chemotherapy has to be changed. And for patients who are on chronic oral medications that cause diarrhea, it's been shown that they have lower adherence to their treatment and uh, and take their medication less frequently. And when we talk about diarrhea, we're talking about an increase in stool frequency, but also the potential for liquidity of the stool and decreased consistency of the stool. There are different mechanisms in the gut that cause diarrhea, and that makes it a complex problem to address with one particular modality of uh, prevention or treatment. The diarrhea can be caused by infections, and that always needs to be kept in mind uh, when patients are receiving uh, cancer treatment. But most commonly, chemotherapy directly affects the lining cells of the intestine, and that can lead to inflammation of the uh, those cells. And the response of the body to that inflammation is to secrete uh, different electrolytes and water into uh, the gut, leading to diarrhea. In addition, something that's not well understood yet is that chemotherapy can have a profound effect on uh, the neurologic system or the nerve system of the gut. And much like Dr. Grala talked about this with regard to nausea and vomiting and uh, the uh, nerve system that exists in the stomach, it also exists uh, further down across the entire GI tract, actually, and we don't understand that very well yet, but there are those effects as well. We know that there are certain chemotherapy drugs that are much more likely to cause diarrhea. For patients who have uh, colorectal cancer, it's particularly important because uh, some of the drugs, like arinotecan, is a drug that can cause both acute early onset within minutes of getting it, as well as delayed diarrhea, and other GI use drugs like 5-fluorouracil and the platinums, particularly oxaliplatin, can cause diarrhea. The platinums in general, which are used across many different cancers, can cause it. And uh, the other drugs, as mentioned by Dr. Epstein, the biologic agents uh, frequently cause diarrhea. And it's a bit of a double-edged sword because, as Dr. Grala said, we're in, a, uh, in an era of precision medicine and we're creating drugs that target a particular uh, gene. And a lot of those, uh, often called tyrosine kinase inhibitors, cause diarrhea. In breast cancer, the CDK4-6 inhibitors can cause diarrhea, and the anti-HER2 drugs can also do that. Even our antibody drug conjugates, the newest uh, group on the block, and the ones that are most likely to replace many of the older uh, standard chemotherapy drugs can do this. So with multiple mechanisms uh, of potentially causing diarrhea, it's a little hard to tease out the, uh, exactly with each drug how that's working, but there is a lot of research going on with this. And as we relate to that, I want to mention the microbiome, which is the collection of bacteria that we all have in our GI tracts. And we're really just scratching the surface of 
what the microbiome does uh, in terms of its immune effect and the way it interacts with our bodies. But clearly, the microbiome is important uh, as a factor in diarrhea. If we think about uh, treatment of diarrhea, the first thing that uh, we, we think about is using a drug called loperamide. Loperamide is available in the United States over-the-counter, and it is a drug that decreases secretion and intestinal motility. Uh, it can be used very safely, even at relatively high dose. So typically, I'll tell my patients that the first onset of diarrhea, they should take uh, one or two loperamides and can take it with each loose stool during the day up to at least six times. That's 12 pills or 24 uh, micrograms. Uh, the next uh, option, if that doesn't control it, is a drug called atropine diphenoxalate or Lomotil in the United States. And that is a prescription drug that has a little stronger effect on motility. It's a little more toxic, but it can be used and is very effective. Beyond that, we sometimes have to go to a, uh, an injectable drug called octreotide, which reduces secretion, and uh, that's for more severe chronic diarrhea. We do know that there are a number of non-pharmacologic interventions that have been looked at, and uh, of course, as you might expect, the first thing is diet. There is some evidence from small randomized studies that there are diets that are more likely to uh, help with diarrhea. High-fiber diets and a modified Mediterranean diet uh, seem to make uh, the most sense for people who are prone to diarrhea. And as Ms. Klocksner said, um, meeting with your oncology nurse or the dietitian is critical before you start a new therapy so that you're aligned with the diet. There is some evidence that probiotics work, and probiotics affect the microbiome. So that's something to think about, although there's still a great deal more work to, to do in that regard. And I, uh, occasionally, uh, non-traditional therapies have been tested, things like acupuncture and acupressure and traditional medicines, and we don't have strong data yet that any of those uh, work. I want to emphasize the role of education when you're starting a new regimen, and you should talk to your provider and your nurse about when diarrhea occurs for these drugs because it's usually pretty predictable. Many of them, it's fairly early after you start, particularly those biologic uh, pills that target that targeted therapy. They often occur in the first week or two, so you should be keyed into that. And communication with your uh, healthcare team is absolutely essential with diarrhea so you don't get into trouble if it persists more than a couple of days. At the first onset, I can't emphasize enough, it's important to talk to your uh, healthcare team and let, and they can help uh, adjust your dosing of your medication if it's an oral or tell you what uh, measures to take if you had gotten a receipt, uh, received an IV medication. The, I wanted, um, mention very quickly the um, immune checkpoint inhibitors that my colleagues have talked about. They can cause diarrhea in, uh, depending on which one, in about 10% up to a third for the group that's called the CTLA-4 inhibitors. But the most important thing is uh, a problem called colitis or inflammation of the lower intestine, which is rare but can be very serious. So if that happens, uh, patients should uh, typically be evaluated perhaps in the emergency room or in the doctor's office as soon as they get 
uh, pain and uh, severe symptoms in the lower intestine. Um, sometimes it can be an infection, but most likely it's immune-related and does respond to anti-inflammatories, particularly uh, systemic corticosteroids like prednisone, although intravenous therapy may be needed as well. So um, I'm going to just end by saying that we need more clinical trials to not only for the symptom of chemotherapy and therapy-induced diarrhea, but of course, that's the way we make progress in cancer. And the wonderful therapies and uh, treatments we have today, including treatments for side effects, are all dependent on people volunteering and participating in clinical trials so the next generation of cancer patients can benefit even more than the current generation, which is dependent on those that came before them. So with that, I will end, and I'll turn it back over to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Schwarzberg. That was wonderful, and I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. I'm just going to say a few words about uh, cancer care services. Um, 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 cancer care um, is a national organization, nonprofit, that provides free programs and services to people who are living and coping with cancer. Um, so both to people who have cancer themselves, their caregivers, family members, friends. Um, and we also help people in the workplace who are colleagues as well. Um, the office service is free. Many people call our HOPE line at 800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Um, and what are our services? So we do offer practical and financial assistance, which really makes a tremendous amount of difference for people. Um, we also have a copay foundation, um, which helps with some of the costs of chemotherapy uh, uh, that um, agents that people may be taking. Um, we also offer online support groups, lots of them, um, for all different ages of people and, rel and relationships as well. So we have groups for people who are um, people living with cancer, who are people who are with different types of cancers, so all the specific types of cancer. We have also groups for caregivers. Um, we have groups for younger adults as well as older adults. So we have a whole, and that's all listed on our website. Um, we also offer these workshops, and we also have publications and fact sheets. So um, with that being said, that gives you just a snapshot of what we offer. Um, and now we're going to move right on to the Q&A. I'm going to ask Regina to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we'll take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Um, and so this question um, for Dr. Grala. How are there side effects that won't subside after treatment? How long does it take for other side effects to go away? Well, um, that's an awful lot. That's a very broad question. Um, uh, for uh, nausea and vomiting, there is something called acute nausea and vomiting, which begins usually uh, a few hours after chemotherapy, although sometimes sooner. And uh, the first day is a great risk. But even if a person has done very well on the first day, there can be something that we call delayed nausea and vomiting. And so, therefore, our medicines are designed to address delayed nausea and vomiting, which can start two, three, 
four days afterwards. So this is why if your team has asked you to take additional medicines, even if you feel well, you should be uh, taking those medicines. So there are three types of nausea and vomiting. The acute that begins on the day of treatment, and we try to prevent that. The delayed, which can begin uh, a few days later, and for which we try to prevent that. And then there's something called anticipatory emesis, which could even begin shortly before the chemo if somebody hasn't done well before. So the best way to prevent the uh, uh, anticipatory is to do a great job the first time out and thereafter so that somebody doesn't anticipate getting nausea and vomiting. I hope that addresses the question. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Grala. And another question now for... Um, Ms. Rebecca Clark-Snow, um, what are your recommendations on getting proper nutrition while experiencing GI side effects from chemotherapy? Well, um, I think it's important, as I think I mentioned during my uh, talk, is to, to talk to your healthcare team and to really uh, have a, a, a good heart-to-heart visit with a dietitian who can go over specifically an individualized care plan, looking at what kind of weight loss there's been, uh, uh, putting together a diet that's, that's really good for that particular patient, talking about what supplements might be available, um, having a discussion with the uh, physician to see if perhaps there are medicines that might be available to help um, in uh, um, ameliorating the uh, loss of appetite. Um, the only issue sometimes with the medications is they may uh, interfere with medications such as chemotherapy or actually have side effects that uh, would also compound uh, whatever side effects they might be experiencing. So. I think it's best for patients to once again talk to their team, talk to the nurses, talk to the dietitian, talk to the physician so that they can all get together and come up with a, an individualized treatment plan that, that works specifically for that, that patient. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, a question from Dr. Schwartzberg. Do you have advice for constipation that's experienced in the same week as diarrhea? Yes, sure. Thank you for that. That's an important question. So uh, one of the problems with the medications that we use for control of diarrhea is because they uh, slow down the gut, um, they can often switch from diarrhea to constipation. And so these are really symptomatic treatments. Unfortunately, they're not direct uh, to get to the root of the problem. And so it's not uncommon for patients who have diarrhea to have this alternating diarrhea and constipation. Again, diet is important. I do recommend for these patients to eat more fiber if they can uh, to bulk up their stool, which will reduce both diarrhea and constipation. And I also recommend that they uh, consider a, a, a gentle laxative, um, which can be uh, a pegylated glycol over the counter, uh, which mix in water and is tasteless. Uh, or, uh, if necessary, a slightly uh, more intense a laxative is fine, uh, something like Ducalax. Well, thank you. Um, 
And uh, for Dr. Epstein, if you could say a little bit more about um, some of the um, stomatitis issues that people may um, experience and just um, how they might manage it. No, that, that's uh, the whole talk again. I'm sorry. Um, good question. <laughs> that there are differences, though, between the the mechanism of, of the causation and, and when we're trying to prevent or treat, the more direct we treat the biological uh, impact, uh, the better. So, so uh, what I was introducing and uh, others have sort of reinforced this in their domain is that these new biologic targeted agents, they tend to produce a different kind of uh, mucositis. Uh, some people call it stomatitis because it looks looks either more red and more painful um, and broader in area than the the other uh, previous treatments used to produce, but also they look more like canker sores and the mechanism of, uh, of the tissue breakdown is different. So that that often involves a topical anti-inflammatory, which usually is a uh, prednisone-like product. Um, as far as the immune checkpoints uh, that were also mentioned by me and others, uh, these are more autoimmune, and they're also typically managed uh, if it's just oral or if it's minor uh, with local oral uh, application of, again, anti-inflammatory steroids. Um, the issue, though, that becomes much more challenging is the frequent co combination of these agents now in, in current and we expect future protocols. Um, where we need to try to identify multimodality means of controlling both inflammatory cell activity, uh, molecular changes that include something called tumor necrosis factor that damages oral tissues, and then the direct tissue damage from, from the cytotoxic therapies of radiation and standard chemo. And one of our, our opportunities is in the red light uh, photobiomodulation area. There is considerable number uh, of products in the pipeline, in, in some in, in phase three and phase two level clinical trials that will soon be available providing additional armamentarium as far as directly treating the toxicity. The other is we need to be better at managing the pain that can be associated with these lesions and much of that is topical therapies again. Um, and, and some have to include uh, pain medicines by mouth. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been terrific. And I also want to thank our participants for asking really such great questions. Um, um, and I, um, I'm going to ask each of our speakers just to, um, in the order that they presented, um, just to take away for people to have before we conclude the program. So starting with Dr. Grala, just a minute takeaway. Well, um, I think that everyone can see that by communicating your concerns and making sure that you understand what's being done to prevent these side effects, such as nausea and vomiting, uh, et cetera, communicating well with your healthcare team is really important. And to understand the uh, medications that you're given and when to take them, uh, and with Many of the anti-nausea medicines, they were given right before you got your chemotherapy after suite to understand how that was done. So good communication is crucial to prevent these side effects, and we can be very, very effective for most patients. Excellent. Thank you. And Ms. Rebecca Clark-Snow? Um, I'd probably like to just emphasize that, you know, we understand for patients and family members that loss of appetite can be devastating for many people because we're so used to 
enjoying meals and and eating what we'd like to um but that is it's it's not impossible to get help for and find out what we need to to help in the situations like that there are oral supplements that are very high in protein that can be taken in between meals um and and other types of supplements so there are lots of things that can be done, but once again, as we've been talking about today, it, it is a, a team, multidisciplinary team effort, so that patients and family members really should talk to nurses, their physicians, and their dietitians to find out what's going to work best for them. Thank you so much. And Dr. Epstein? Yeah, I'm happy to sort of contribute just a final thought. Uh, again, going back to my introduction, the mouth is really a part of the body. Um, the medical team may not be as focused on the oral status uh, as the patient may experience, so that should be reported to the medical team. Um, similarly, the dental providers, especially in the community, are not very aware of um, uh, oncology care and complications, and let alone any newer excuse me, therapies. So to find resources in the community, this may involve questions at the cancer treatment facility. They may have a team. They may have an integrated dental support group that are informed. They may know people in the community. There may be university-based resources available in some places. But in more broadly, one small piece of advice is to maybe seek uh, dentists in the community who have had hospital training. Uh, and there's, in, in pretty much every community, there are, are several of these people that have done a one-year additional training in the hospital. And so they understand things better and communicate better with the medical team. So if your institution doesn't have uh, the resources available at the facility, they may have a DICE they may have a list of people who you can see or you can search this through or through the community dentist who typically will know someone who's who's had that additional training. And, of course, some of this is complex and you really do need additional support. But, uh, again, the mouth is part of the body. We have kind of separated it artificially. Um, I'm glad that, that there's increasing recognition that we're all coming back together. So thank you again. Well, thank you so much. That's so important, Dr. Epstein. Thank you. And Dr. Um, Schwartzberg. I just want to reiterate the communication with the healthcare team uh, about GI side effects and really all your concerns. As it relates to diarrhea particularly, um, I, I want to distinguish that we don't have preventative treatment like we do for chemotherapy-induced emesis, and so you have to be prepared and ask your team when the diarrhea might be most likely to occur because they're usually relatively predictable uh, within a range of days and not right after the chemotherapy necessarily, particularly with the oral therapy. So preparation, uh, having medications on hand if it occurs and to start them and then uh, importantly communication with your team not only before to be prepared but also at the onset of diarrhea or other GI side effects um, because if you're taking medications at home or if, and you're not coming to the office or to the clinic or the hospital on a regular basis, the only way that the health care team can know about it is if you communicate with them. Don't be afraid to call them. You're never bothering us if you call with a new side effect. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Again, I want to thank all of our speakers. I want to thank our participants. 
Um, this has been a phenomenal call, I have to say, and um, and it's a, a program that we've done. We have done it before, but I have to say this program was particularly exceptional. So I want to thank um, our speakers and our participants. Um, now I do want to comment the fact that we didn't. We're not able to take all of your questions. So there are some of you who were able to ask a question. Some of you are still in queue, and some of you um, have a question that you are thinking about asking. I would recommend that all of you go back to your treating healthcare team, and please do talk to your healthcare team about um, your question, even if you got to ask it, because they know you the best, and 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 you've also learned a lot from the program today. So you can actually take what you've learned, and when you ask your question of your healthcare team, you'll have more information. You'll be able to perhaps understand what they're saying to you, and you'll be able to be. Please keep asking your question until you get the answer that you need. And most importantly, we would not want anyone to leave this call today feeling they're alone. We want you to know that you're part of the community support, and we are here to help you. Your healthcare team consists of many, many people. It's a multidisciplinary team, as many of our speakers have mentioned, so that um, you have your oncologist, you have your oral surgeon, you have your um, oncology nurse, oncology social worker, patient navigator, financial navigator, a whole team of people there. So if you're seeing your oncologist and have a question, ask the question. They will be able to connect you to someone that will be able to help you with that answer. That's really important. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.